you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to be in Isaiah 7, 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 10. As most of you know, we've recently begun this study in the book of Isaiah, and we arrive now at chapter 7, which begins a new section in the book as a whole. Chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah speak of, of Judah's rebellion and idolatry. We've seen kind of in a, a more general way, sort of laying out the themes and the movements of the book in, in broad strokes. They are the, the overture of the book that, that kind of lays everything out. And then as we saw last week, Isaiah 6 strikes a note of hope after all of the, the judgment that had come and the wondering what's going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem, we find that Isaiah, a man of unclean lips, could be cleansed and forgiven and commissioned by a holy God. And so therefore there's hope. There's hope for Judah, there's hope for Jerusalem to become the holy city that they were supposed to be. And then from these introductory chapters, we move into Isaiah 7, which in fact puts us right in the middle of Isaiah and his people's historical situation. In fact, chapter 7 opens up a new section of the book that's going to go all the way to chapter 39. Chapter 7 begins with King Ahaz, who does not trust the Lord. And then we move all the way to chapter 39. Actually, you could say chapters 36 through 39, which speak about Hezekiah, a man who had faith in the Lord. Not perfect faith, but much different than Ahaz. And so there's a movement that's happening from chapter 7 to chapter 39 that we'll watch and in all of this, it's a, there's a, a call to faith, a call to trust in the Lord. That's central to this section of Isaiah. It's central to the whole book, as it were. God's people are being called to put their hope and to put their trust in God alone, not in foreign powers or political policies. And the big idea of this passage is in fact found in a statement at the end of uh, chapter 7, verse 9. It's always wonderful when the big idea of a passage is actually just right there in the passage, and I don't even have to come up with something on my own. Listen to this, what Isaiah says so beautifully. He says at the end of verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will, be, you will not be firm at all. That's the big idea for this afternoon, and it's God's warning and invitation to us. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. One commentator writes of this, faith is the central reality of the Lord's people, not just their distinctiveness, but their ground of existence. No faith, no people. Faith then is not, is not a piece of the Christian life. Maybe you've played Jenga. If you think about the Christian life like that Jenga tower with all those blocks, faith is not one of the pieces that you can sort of pull out and the tower still stands. Even like one of those little pieces where you poke it out and it, you know, this tower is still nice and firm. That's not what faith is like. Faith is foundational. So that building Christianity on something other than faith in Christ is like trying to build a Jenga tower on top of the top of a swimming pool. I mean like the water in the swimming pool. It's not going to work. There's no foundation. Faith is not a block. Faith is the ground of what we believe. And so the call to faith here, the call for, for Judah and for Ahaz in particular to believe is kind of a point of no return for God's people. They have to believe and trust in God now or they're going to face deep consequences of judgment and the continued hardening 
of their hearts. They have to be people of faith or they will cease to be a people at all. For us too, we're, we're called to ask this question, am I firm in faith? Am I firm in faith? Well, we're going to find that Ahaz and Judah choose not to be firm in faith. The hope offered behind all the dark hues of this chapter is that we can be firm in our faith because God is trustworthy. We can stake our lives, we can stake our eternal souls on the word of God and know that God is going to do what he says. We can be firm in faith. We can be different than Judah. We can be different than Ahaz by God's grace. And so I think the invitation today is sort of to firm up our faith, to see where the path of trusting something other than God leads, and then to see the hope for those who would trust in him completely, and then to choose to to stand firm on the unchanging character and promises of God, to trust him, to trust his word, to lean on him in prayer, to find comfort in his presence and in his people to be firm in faith. And we have to be firm in faith because if we're not firm in faith, we'll not be firm at all. So with all that in mind, let's read chapter seven, verses one through chapter eight, verse 10. It's a long passage. Let me give you just a few notes to, so that you can follow along well as we read. The first couple verses are gonna be introductory. And then it's going to be a conversation between God and Ahaz, though Ahaz only speaks pretty much um, in verses 10 and 11. And so it's a conversation that God is having through the prophet Isaiah with Ahaz. Uh, You might note in verses 18 through 23, there's a repetition of in that day. Um, Other things you might notice is there's two births that serve as signs to the people of Judah. So two children are born that are intended to to wake them up. So kind of keep those things in mind. Hopefully that'll help as we read a longer section. But hear God's word from the the prophecy of Isaiah. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. 
But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the, uh, and the hair of the feet. And it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep a young cow and two sheeps. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will come there for you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberkiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore behold, The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries, Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. In verses 1 and 2, we find ourselves in the middle of the reign of Ahaz. Ahaz is the son of Jotham and the grandson of Uzziah, who we heard about uh, last week. But unlike his father and his grandfather, through 2 Chronicles 28, we we learn that Ahaz does not walk in the ways of the Lord. 
Listen to how the message renders this summary of Ahaz's reign from 2 Chronicles 28. It says, Ahaz followed the track of Israel in the north, even casting metal figurines for worshiping the pagan Baal gods. He participated in the, in the, participated in the outlawed burning of incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and incredibly indulged in the outrageous practice of passing his sons through the fire a truly abominable thing he picked up from the pagans God had earlier thrown out of the country. He also joined in the activities of the neighborhood sex and religion shrines that flourished all over the place. This is the king of Judah. And thus we know something about his character. And amidst all of these dreadful practices, Ahaz finds himself in the vice grip on the one hand of his brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel, and on the other hand, the, the pagan nation of Syria. So Israel in the north and, and Syria were in league together. And they were trying to get Ahaz and Judah to join with them so that they could be a league not of two, but of, of three, to find some strength in numbers. And they told Judah, if you do not join us, then we will attack you. Uh, this alliance was meant to press against the superpower of the day, which was Assyria, trying to take over Palestine. Now remember, Syria and Assyria, two different nations. It gets a little confusing sometimes, okay? So Syria and Israel are in league. They're trying to get Judah and King Ahaz to join them so that they can withstand the forces of Assyria that are coming. And Ahaz is not sure what to do. He doesn't know if he should join in with these guys to fight against Assyria because he's not sure that they're going to be successful to fight against this superpower that is Assyria. So the other option, rather than joining with them to push against Assyria, is to submit to Assyria, to, to be, go in league with the Assyrians and, and hope for the best from that. Those are his two options. At least those are the two options that he thinks there are. And there is, in fact, a third option, against alliance with any nation. But we're going to find out that Ahaz rejects that option. Still, we might put ourselves in Ahaz's shoes. You're the leader of this nation, and, and these countries are coming against you. Just think about the fear that would rise in you as you're getting put into this squeeze and have to figure out what to do. We actually don't have to guess how they felt. We're told in Isaiah 7-2 that when Ahaz and the people heard about this alliance, that their hearts shook like the trees of the forest shake before a strong wind. What a great picture. Maybe you've stood on a high hill and you've heard the wind rush through some trees and you hear the, the branches shake and even some of the limbs creaking. That's the shaking of the heart of Ahaz and of all Israel. We can admit that our, our hearts can shake in a similar way sometimes. We can be filled with fear. We can look at the forces gathered against us and against those that we love. And we might feel anxiety. We might feel some distress. As Wendell Berry writes, there are times when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. Sometimes I feel that. There's a lot to fear in this world. There's uncertainty, there's violence. Violence in places we would never expect it to be. There's disease, there's decay. There are forces of evil that would set themselves against us. There are forces of evil that would say, join us or face the consequences. And it's often in fear 
that our foundational beliefs are revealed. If we get shaken a little bit, we find out what we stand on. Like Jesus' parable, the wind and the rain fall and they make it clear what the house is built on. Sand or the solid rock? So what about us? What do our fears reveal about what we're trusting in? And what about Ahaz? Where will he turn in his distress and his despair? We might think we know, given the track record we read about in 2 Chronicles 28, and yet God, in his kindness, turns to this man who has sold his soul to foreign gods, and he gives him an invitation to trust. That's the first thing I want us to see, an invitation to trust. An invitation to trust. If I'm God, and we can all be glad I'm not, but if I'm God, I gave up on Ahaz a long time ago. And yet we're told in verse 3 that the Lord sends Isaiah to Ahaz to invite him to put his faith in the strong arm of the sovereign Lord. Praise God he doesn't give up on us like we give up on other people, right? He seeks out lost sheep. He calls his children back to faith even when we've grown faithless. Isaiah and his son are sent to Ahaz and they're sent to meet him by an aqueduct. Ahaz is outside of the city and he's looking at a conduit that brought water into the city. Why? He's getting ready for his city to be under siege. And Ahaz is probably trying to figure out how can I protect the water supply of Jerusalem? What can I do to endure this siege that's going to come on my city. And as he stands there and considers all his political and his military options, as he invests his intellect as strong as he can to figure out how he can get over this, Isaiah and his son arrive with that third option. And it's an invitation from God, an invitation to trust him. That's the third option. Ahaz, trust me. Isaiah begins verse four by saying just this Lovely refrain where he says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and don't lose heart. Isaiah comes with the word of God and says to Ahaz, don't be afraid and don't do anything. Reject all of these alliances and don't be afraid of any of these guys. I love the kindness of God's call here this call to faith, it, it recognizes that we fear things and we, 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 we call, he calls us out of that anxiety of our fear into peace. He calls us to cease striving and know that he is God. It's a call to rest and know that God is on the throne, that he is sovereign over all the forces that are gathered against us, that he is trustworthy, he is worthy of us putting our faith in him. The Lord describes Ahaz, he says, don't worry about these guys because they're smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're like burnt out embers. I don't know about your kids, but if we have a bonfire, my kids have to have a stick and they have to stick it in the fire and hold it there and then hold it up and watch it burn a little bit and then go out. And it's just sort of this smoldering end there. And God through Isaiah tells Ahaz, that's what these guys are like. They seem so strong. Syria and Israel Rezin and Pekah, they talk big about taking over Judah and cutting off the line of David. But God says of their plans, they will not come to pass. Verse 7 is just 
so unequivocal. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. And then in verse 18, we learn of all their bluster that that we're told that if Ahaz would trust in the Lord, they would be gone in 65 years. They're gone. It's in light of that knowledge uh, that what God knows is coming, that he calls Ahaz to faith. He says, trust in me. I know what's going to happen, and you don't have to worry about these guys. Just trust me. The parallel structure of of verses 8 and 9 indicate that what will happen to Israel will happen to Judah unless Ahaz chooses faith in the Lord. Israel lacked faith. They trusted in a foreign alliance, and so their end was destruction. But there was still hope for Judah. There was still hope that they would trust. They were looking for security. Ahaz was looking for this solid ground to stand on. And the Lord says, trusting me and my word, that's your only hope. Because if you're not firm in faith, you're not firm at all. Everything's going to crumble, Ahaz, if you trust in something other than me. I'm the only thing you can trust in. The Lord speaks again in verse 10. It says in verse 10, and again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, even though we had no response from Ahaz. Makes me wonder if Ahaz heard this and just never responded. And God in his patience comes to him again. And God invites Ahaz to ask for a sign. Anything Ahaz, as high as heaven, as deep as the deepest parts of the earth. The Lord is recognizing that this is hard for Ahaz. He's recognizing the difficulty of faith. And so he's willing to do anything that would help weak Ahaz to believe. How gracious of God to do that, to invite Ahaz, ask for anything, and I'll, I'll do it so that you will believe. We hear that, and sometimes we might wonder, well, why doesn't God do that for me? Can I ask God for a sign like that? Well, at times I think God does. The Lord speaks in many ways to, to people. He speaks to us sometimes in ways we don't recognize. The Lord works in miraculous ways in dreams and in circumstances and graces beyond our imagination. But we also know that we have something Ahaz didn't have, right? That we have the trustworthiness of the scriptures. And, and most fully in the scriptures, we have the sign of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is a sign that God has given us that cannot be denied when it's honestly investigated. And how good of God to give us this sign of the efficacy of Jesus' death and the hope of our future resurrection. It's a sign that God has given us that's as high as heaven and it's as deep as Sheol and it calls us to believe, to trust, to know that God is trustworthy. And Ahaz could have asked for a sign. I think if Ahaz would have said, raise up one of my parents, that God would have done it so that he could bring him to faith, to trust him and to lead Israel in faith. But what we find in verse 12 in response to God's invitation to faith is stubborn unbelief. That's the second thing I want us to see is stubborn unbelief. Verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put God to the test. There was a point in my life where I had an unnecessarily firm stance on handbells. I had decided that I didn't like them. And for some reason, I let people know whenever I had the opportunity. And going to a Bible school, I had a lot of opportunities for some reason to let people know that I didn't like handbells. And so 
when handbells would show up in chapel, everyone would say, ah, handbells. Andy hates handbells. But then one day I heard some handbells and I kind of liked them. But the problem was I I had made my stance so unequivocal and my hatred for handbells was, was so clear to everyone that there was no going back unless I wanted to swallow my pride and admit that maybe I was wrong about handbells. Ahaz is invited to believe. He's invited to trust the Lord. The sovereign Lord tells Ahaz exactly what's going to happen in Israel, to Israel and to Syria in the future. He invites him to ask for a sign to help his unbelief, but Ahaz refuses. Why? Because Ahaz has already made up his mind. We see that he has already chosen the path that he's going down and trust in the Lord is not an option in his brain or in his heart. The path he's chosen is is played out in 2 Kings 16. And it's a path of trusting, not in, joining, not in this alliance with Israel and Syria, but rather of trusting in the king of Assyria. This is what 2 Kings 16, 7-8 tells us. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Ahaz had faith. He just didn't have any faith in God. He had faith in the king of Assyria. Do you you hear the affront of what he says to this man? He says, I am your servant and son. This is the king of God's people. He says to the king of Assyria, I'm your servant and your son. No, you're not. You're supposed to be God's servant and God's son. He goes into the temple not to seek God's face. Why does he go into the temple? To ransack it, to take all the gold out of it and give it to a foreign king so that this king will protect him. Ahaz has faith, it's just not in God. And so Ahaz's rejection of the offer of a sign for God betrays his heart. It betrays that he is unwilling to believe or even to seek the Lord. He had pridefully already chosen his path and even a direct word from God could not change him. Even a sign as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol could not change his mind. Ahaz Ahaz sounds so pious in verse 12, doesn't he? I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. But he doesn't want to ask for a sign because he doesn't want to believe. Certainly there are, there's a way to put God to the test that's sinful. We know this. Um, commentator Matyar speaks of asking for a sign in a spirit of unbelief that doubts God's goodwill. And he says, to ask a sign in this spirit is proof that one does not believe. It treats God like a performing animal with faith as the sugar lump rewarding the trick. We don't ask for God for signs like that. We don't test the Lord in that way. And we might even wonder if, if that kind of a spirit would even be convinced by a sign. The words of Jesus come to mind in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which ends with the rich man begging that Lazarus would be sent back from the dead so that he could go to the rich man's friends and that they would see resurrected Lazarus and then they would believe, right? That's a sign that they would believe. But what does Father Abraham say? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the trustworthiness of the word, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A heart 
hardened in unbelief is a fearful thing because nothing can convince it. And in fact, such a heart fearfully rejects even the opportunity to be convinced. Have you ever seen this in friends and family and co-workers? An unwillingness to even open up their hearts and their minds to the possibility of salvation? They don't even want to hear the evidence? In fact, that's all of us apart from God's grace. We will all persist in sin and rebellion and we will remain under God's judgment. And that's why the hope of the new covenant is not a healed heart. It's a new one. It's one that the the Spirit would give us so that we would believe. Because otherwise we're just like Ahaz. And that's why when we speak the truth in love to others, we're also praying that God's Spirit would open their blind eyes and would give them a new heart to believe. And that's why we rejoice that God is the author of salvation from beginning to end, that he's the one that's opened our hearts to believe. Otherwise, we would continue to reject him. Ahaz's stubborn unbelief means that salvation will not be his future, but rather judgment and darkness. And that's, in fact, I think what the rest of this passage spells out. So that's the the third point is, is judgment and darkness. The judgment and darkness is described in verse 7, 13, all the way through 8, 22, but we're just going to look through 8, 10 uh, briefly today. And I think the hinge from God's invitation to faith to, to his, his prediction of judgment is seen from verse, from 11, verse 7, 11 to 13. We see, we see something change here. And what changes actually is a pronoun. It's really interesting. In, in verse 11, Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord, your God. But in verse 13, what does he say? He says that the unbelief of Ahaz and Judah tries the patience of my God. Isaiah states the reality of the situation. The absence of trust in God shows that God is not the God of Ahaz or of Judah. They're trusting in something else. And so therefore, their unbelief is wearying to God. What a statement. It's wearying to God. It wears him out and tries his patience, unbelief. Ahaz would not ask for a clear sign from God, so the Lord gives him an enigmatic and mysterious sign that's hard to understand, even today. (laughs) It's this famous prophecy of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son who she would call Emmanuel. Now we know the clear fulfillment of it is, is, is found in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, that this ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy is found in the birth of Jesus Christ through the Virgin Mary. But often with Old Testament prophecy, especially Messianic prophecies, there's a, a near fulfillment and there's a, there's a Messianic fulfillment. So in, in Isaiah's day, there would be some sort of fulfillment of this prophecy pointing towards this greater fulfillment that comes in Christ. And it could be that the sign of Emmanuel, that there was actually a child to be born to a young woman, while, and that while he was still young, the kings of Israel and Assyria who were rising against Judah would be defeated. So that's sort of the picture. It's this son will be born, and before he, he's weaned from, from this food, these, these curds and, and honey, that he will, that, that Israel and Syria will 
no longer be in power. And so there's this note of hope for the nation, the hope that God was still with them and that God would fight their enemies. However, that's about all the good news that there, there is. Because verses 17 through 24 speak of days coming when Judah is going to face the judgment enacted by God through who? Through the king of Assyria. Who, who had Ahaz decided to trust? The king of Assyria. And what's going to happen? The king of Assyria is going to be God's instrument of judgment on Ahaz. Second Chronicles 28.20 says it like this. So tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came against Ahaz and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Barry Webb says, whatever we rely on instead of trusting in God will eventually turn and devour us. Whatever we rely on instead of trusting in God will eventually turn and devour us. I've felt that. Have you felt that? The things that I'm looking for joy and peace and happiness and hope and security in become the things that consume my soul. The affliction of Judah is spelled out in four statements that begin with those words in that day that are so common in Isaiah. I'll just run through them briefly. Verses 18 and 19, we find that in that day, the sovereign Lord is going to whistle. We saw that earlier in Isaiah. He's going to whistle um, for Assyria and like flies or bees, or maybe you might imagine like the locusts of the plagues on Egypt. They're going to show up. These foreign armies are going to fill every nook and cranny of Judah, and they're going to devour the people. In verse 20, the king of Assyria is said to be like a razor, in God's hand, which he can wield wherever he wants. Just think about this. Think about the king of Assyria, this mighty king, the ruler of the great power of the day. He's like a disposable Bic razor in God's hand. And God says, I'll do whatever I want with him, and then I'll throw him in the trash. <laughs> That's what God does. He picks up the king of Assyria and he shaves Judah. If you know anything about Old Testament law, then you know that the shaving of the head or of the beard would bring shame to a man. And so God was going to shame and humiliate his people who had not trusted in him. And he's going to do it with the foreign king that they were trusting in. Verses 21 and 22 describe how a small herd of cattle will produce more than enough milk in Judah because the people are going to be so few. There's going to be so few people left in the land. You won't need a lot of cattle to feed everyone. And the food that they're going to be eating is the food of poverty. And then the picture in verses 23 and 24 is of the entire land being devastated. Every fertile field is lying fallow. As you think about those pictures, foreign armies filling the, the city, God shaving and shaming them, the the depopulation and the decimation of their fields. That is the picture of anyone who trusts in anyone or anything other than the sovereign and gracious Lord. Faith in false gods or governments, faith in self or in wealth, faith in our own strength or our own intelligence will leave us devastated and fruitless. There's a second child that's born at the beginning of chapter 8. Not as well known as Emmanuel, probably because his name is so hard to say. 
Maher Shalal Hashbaz. If I'm not mistaken, and Joshua can confirm this, I think Corey Ten Boom had a cat with that name. Just a little piece of trivia for you. I'm not sure how they called that cat, but... <laughs> um, well, like the child Emmanuel, this child's arrival speaks of God's coming judgment. And the sign is actually much clearer than the sign of Emmanuel because it's hard to miss the meaning of that name. It was a name that was supposed to be plastered in a common language for everyone to read. And that child's name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, communicates something like the prey hastens. It says to Judah that judgment is coming. And it's coming fast. This was Isaiah's son. And everywhere he would introduce him, he would say, this is my son. The prey hastens. Judgment's coming on Judah. Judgment's coming on Judah. The picture of the flood that follows is a daunting one and it ties in well. You might think about those pictures we saw last week of the flood in Isabella. And you can think about how devastating a flood can be. And if you've ever faced a flood, even just a, a small one, you know that once the water starts to rise, there's very little you can do to stop it. If it starts seeping in under your doors, there's no getting out of it. When the water level gets to that point and it begins filling your house, you feel hopeless. And the judgment that Assyria is going to bring on Judah is going to be like a flood. It's going to be like a river overflowing its banks and filling the land until the people, it says, are up to their neck. So the question of Isaiah 7 and 8 is a familiar one already from the book of Isaiah, but it's one we need to keep hearing. It's the question of who and what are we trusting in? Where is our security and where is our hope? God, through Ahaz and through Judah, shows us the path of trusting in anything or anyone other than the Lord and his word. And we're encouraged to reject that path, to not go down that path. It's a path of destruction and devastation. There's no reason you would want to go down that path. And so we learn by the negative example of Ahaz. And yet also the Lord in his kindness gives us some glimmers of hope. Even in the midst of this situation where people, where everyone is surrounded by unbelief, there is there are glimmers of hope for those who trust in the Lord. That's what I want to end with. I guess that's our fourth point. Glimmers of hope for those who trust in the Lord. There's a number of them here. I just want to point out basically two. And they're found in two different names. The first is in Isaiah's son in chapter 7 verse 3. You remember this is the son that, I, that God told Isaiah to bring along with him. It was take your son to work day for Isaiah. And you go see Ahaz. I want you to bring, God says, your son, Shear Jashub, with you. And he comes to Ahaz and he confronts his unbelief. And standing next to him is a son whose name means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. Isaiah is starting to introduce this idea of a faithful remnant that will be existing in Judah. That everyone's going to reject, the, everyone in Judah seems like they're rejecting the Lord, but there is this faithful remnant. Though it seems like everyone else is hardened 
in stubborn unbelief, we're given the encouraging words that there's going to be a remnant. That there will be those who remain faithful to the Lord. Sometimes it can feel like everyone around us is forsaking the Lord. But God says there's always a remnant. There's always people, even in the midst of the Ahazes and the Judas of the world, there's a remnant. And for those who trust in the Lord, there also is the hope that God will remain with them. And this is back to that promise of Emmanuel. The, the judgment of the, of the sign of Emmanuel, because here in Isaiah, it's more of a judgment than a hope maybe. For, it's a judgment for Ahaz, but it's a hope for this remnant. I'll give you one commentator's idea on this. He says that it could be that Emmanuel in Isaiah's day is in fact the remnant itself, that the child is this faithful remnant. So earlier in chapter one, Jerusalem is described as as a daughter, as a young daughter. And so then Emmanuel is is the the child that is birthed through Jerusalem. It's, It's this faithful remnant that's still trusting in the Lord. And the judgment of this this name, Emmanuel, is God is with us, Ahaz. God is with the faithful remnant. He's not with you. And that's a judgment on him. The theme of Emmanuel fills the chapter. Did you see it in 8.8? It seems like the land is called, the people are called Emmanuel there in in chapter chapter 8, verse 8. And then, Chapter 8, verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us, not with you. The encouragement then again seems to be that no matter who or how many reject God, those that he awakens to faith will know his presence. He will remain with them. They will know the goodness of his nearness. As we think about this promise of Emmanuel and we look forward to the coming of Christ then, we remember that it's into our darkness and unbelief that God sent his son to be with us. That he too came to a people and was rejected by them. Just as as Ahaz rejected God, Jesus came into the world and was rejected. But for those who will believe, for those who will trust and put their hope in him, we will find who will find hope in his, in his death for our sins and hope in his resurrection for our justification, then he is with us. He has come to save us. And he is with us even now through the abiding presence of his spirit. And we know that he will come again to be with us forever. For some, the presence of God on that last day will be cause for fear. It will spell judgment. But for we who are his children, for the remnant who believes, his coming will be what our hearts are are longing for. So as we face the stresses of life, as you face the stresses of the season maybe, (laughs) what are you trusting in? How is your fear or your anxiety revealing where your hope is? when we're filled with, filled with fear and despair, may our only hope be to trust God. He's our only hope. He's the only true source of hope that we have. 
And we have to trust in him because if we're not firm in our faith, we're not firm at all. If our faith in God is not firm, then everything else will fall apart. But if we trust him, then we will know the blessing of salvation. I will know the blessing of God with us. His presence won't be a cause for fear, but it will be a cause for hope and for joy.